Um, thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Uh, welcome again, Judge. Um, since I have the draw to always follow Senator Cruz, I did want to make uh, one thing clear uh, after listening to that for a half hour, that Joe Biden is Catholic and he is a man of faith. And then I want to turn to something else, and that is that uh, we need a reset here, in my mind, for the people at home, a bit of a reality check uh, that this isn't normal right now. Uh, we have to understand that what people are dealing with, that 7.7 .7 million people have gotten this virus, that 214,000 Americans have died. And for people watching at home and wondering what we're all doing in this room right now, and maybe you're home because you lost your job, or maybe you got your kids crawling all over your couch right now, uh, maybe you're trying to teach your first grader how to do a mute button to go to school, um, or maybe you've got a small business um, that you had to close down or that's struggling. We should be doing something else right now. We shouldn't be doing this. We should be passing coronavirus relief like the House just did, which was a significant bill that would have been a big help. And I think people have to know that right now. And whether you're Democrat, Independent, or Republican. And that's why I started out yesterday by telling people that they need to vote. Number two, some of my colleagues throughout this hearing on the other side have been kind of portraying the job uh, that the uh, judge is before us on as being some kind of ivory tower exercise. I think one of my uh, friends called it uh, related that you'd be dealing with the dormant commerce clause. Well, I'm sure that might be true, but we also know that this is the highest court in the land, that the decisions of this court have a real impact on people. And I appreciate a judge that you said that you didn't want to be a queen. I actually wouldn't mind being a queen around here, <laughs> the truth be known. I, I wouldn't mind doing it and kind of a benevolent queen and making decisions so we could get things done. Um, but. Uh, you said you wouldn't let your views influence you and the like, but the truth is the Supreme Court rulings, they rule people's lives. They decide if people can get married. They decide what schools they can go to. They decide if they could even have access to contraception. All of these things matter. So I wanna make that clear. And the third reset here that I think we need to have is that this hearing is not normal, uh, it is a sham, it is a rush to put in a justice. The last time that we had a vacancy so close to an election was when Abraham Lincoln was president. And he made the wise decision to wait until after the election. The last time we lost a justice so close to an election. That's what he did. Today, we are 21 days from the election. People are voting. Millions of people have already cast their ballots. And I go uh, to the words of Senator McConnell. The last time we had a situation in election year, he said, the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Therefore, this vacancy should not be filled until we have a new president. That set the precedent that so many of you have embraced or at least you did a few years ago, and that is that in an election year, the people choose the president, and then the president nominates the justice. So why is this happening? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, 
this guy, <laughs> our president. He is the one that decided to plop a Supreme Court nomination in the middle of an election when people's health care is on the line with a case before the court on November 10th. So let's see what he said about the Supreme Court. Well, one of President Trump's campaign promises in 2015 was that his judicial appointment will do the right thing on Obamacare. You can see it right here. And in fact, Judge, just one day after you were nominated, this is like a few weeks ago, he said also on Twitter that it would be a big win if the Supreme Court strikes down the health law. So, Judge, my first question, do you think we should take the president at his word when he says his nominee will do the right thing and overturn the Affordable Care Act? Senator Klobuchar, um, I can't really speak to what the president has said on Twitter. Um, he hasn't said any of that to me. And what I can tell you, um, as I have told your colleagues earlier today, is that no one has elicited from me any commitment in a case or even brought up a commitment in the case. I am 100% committed to judicial independence from political pressure. So whatever people's you know, party platforms may be or campaign promises may be, the reason why judges have life tenure is to insulate them from those pressures. Mm -hmm. So I take my oath seriously to follow the law. And you know, I, I have not pre-committed, nor would I pre-commit to decide a case any particular way. Okay. And I think this life tenure, this idea that you have just for everyone out there, a job for life, makes this even more important uh, for us to consider where you might be. And I know you have not said how you would re rule on this case uh, that's coming up right after the election, uh, where the president had said it would be a big win if the Supreme Court strikes down the law. But you have directly criticized Justice Roberts in an article in my own state, in one of uh, the Minnesota Law School journals. It was in 2017. It was the same year you became a judge. And when Roberts writes the opinion to uphold the Affordable Care Act, you said he, quote, pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute. Is that correct? Senator Klobuchar, I just want to clarify, is this the constitutional commentary publication that you and I discussed? Yes, it I is. That? Okay. That's, it is, but it's still a Minnesota, no, it, University of Minnesota law. Yes. Okay. I just wanted to be sure because yep. I hadn't mm -hmm. published in the Minnesota I just, law review. Again, did you ask that question? Did you say that, that he pushed the Affordable Care Act beyond its plausible meaning to save the statute? Um, one thing I want to clarify is you said that I criticized, you know, Chief Justice Roberts and I don't attack people, just ideas. So okay. that was just designed to, to make a comment about his reasoning in that case, which, I've, as I've said before, is consistent with the way the majority opinion characterized it as the less plausible reading of the statute. Okay. So you didn't agree with his reasoning in the case that upheld the Affordable Care Act? What I said, and was this King versus Burwell or NFIB versus Sebelius? That was NFIB versus Sebelius. I'll get to King versus Burwell in a second. Okay. Um, what I said with respect to NFIB versus Sebelius is that the interpretation that the majority adopted, construing the mandate to be a tax rather than a penalty, was not the most natural reading of the statute. But it, it was still no the comment. reading that 
Justice Roberts got to. Now, you also criticized, as you pointed out by bringing up King v. Burwell, another case where the court ruled in favor of the health law. This was in a 2015 uh, National Public Radio interview. And you acknowledged that uh, the result of people being able to uh, keep uh, their subsidies under the Affordable Care Act uh, was a, would help millions of Americans, yet you praised the dissent by Justice Scalia, saying the dissent had, quote, the better of the legal argument. Is that correct? I did say that, yes. Okay, so then would you rule, have ruled the same way and voted with Justice Scalia? Well, Senator Klobuchar, um, one of the uh, plus sides or the upsides of being an academic is that you can speak for yourself, that a professor professes and can opine, but it's very different than the judicial decision-making process. So it's difficult for me to say how I would have decided that case if I had to go through the whole process of judicial decision-making that I was describing this morning. Now, having been a judge for three years, I can say I appreciate greatly the distinctions between academic writing or academic speaking and judicial decision making, um, such that a judge might look at an academic and say, easy for you to say, mm -hmm. because you're not on a multi-member court, you're not constrained by stare decisis, um, you don't have real parties in front of you, consulting with litigants, consulting with your clerks. Yes. It's just a different process. I'm just, I viewed this one so interestingly because you were commenting on the public policy result which you and my colleagues on the Republican side have said this shouldn't be about public policy. And you said, okay, that's okay. But then you were really clear on your legal outcome in terms of your view of whose side you were on. You were on Scalia's side. And of course, that was a side uh, to not uphold the Affordable Care Act, uh, which would have been um, kicked millions of people off their health care in effect because they would have lost their subsidies. And I just see this as interesting because of this uh, kind of dichotomy they're trying to make between policy and legal. And my view is that legal decisions affect policy. I mean, I'm looking at people in my state uh, that'll deal with this if the Affordable Care Act is struck down. Elijah from St. Paul, who was born with cerebral palsy. Uh, because of the Affordable Care Act, he is now 16 and is a proud Boy Scout. Casey, whose brother lives in Alexandria and his chronic kidney failure and he needs a transplant. Uh, without the ACA, um, that'd be that. Or Burnett from the suburbs of St. Paul, whose daughter has multiple sclerosis, depends on benefits under the ACA. Liliana of Fridley, who has a 21-year-old son with autism and needs her children to be able to stay on her insurance until she's 26. Melanie, a senior from Duluth, who's being treated for ovarian cancer and needs access to the Affordable Care Act. So my point is that these are real world situations. And so I get that you're not saying how you'd rule on these cases. So what does that leave us with here to try to figure out what kind of judge you would be? And I was thinking last night of when I was growing up, we would go up to Northern Minnesota and we uh, didn't have a cabin, but we had friends that did. And we would go on these walks in the woods uh, with my mom and she loved to show all the tracks on that path, uh, whether they were uh, deer tracks and she'd have us figure out what they were, or elk, or maybe even a bear. And we would follow these tracks down that path. And you'd always think, is there gonna be a deer around the corner that we're gonna see? And very rarely was there one, but we would follow the tracks. 
And so when I look at your record, I just keep following the tracks. That's what I've got to do. And so when I follow the tracks, this is what I see. You consider Justice Scalia one of the most conservative judges in the history of the Supreme Court as your mentor. You criticize the decision written by Justice Roberts upholding the Affordable Care Act. That is, to me, one big track. Even if you didn't consider yourself criticizing him personally, you criticized uh, the reasoning. You then said in another case about the Affordable Care Act uh, that you would uh, that you liked the legal reasoning, that he had the better legal argument, that Justice Scalia had the better legal argument. Uh, you have signed your name to a public statement featured in an ad, a paid ad, that called for an end to what it called, the ad called, the barbaric legacy of Roe v. Wade, which ran on the anniversary of the 1973 Supreme Court decision. You disagreed with long-standing precedent on gun safety, which said that felons shouldn't be able to get guns, something that was pretty important to me when I had my old job in law enforcement. This is something that Senator Durbin asked you about. You suggested that you agree with the dissent in the marriage equality case, Obergefell, that it wasn't the role of the court to decide that same-sex couples had the right to be married. I think this was in a lecture you gave where you said uh, the dissent's view was that it wasn't for the court to decide. They could, people could lobby in state legislatures. And all this takes me to one point as I follow those tracks down that path. And it takes me to this point where I believe, and I think the American people have to understand, that you would be the polar opposite of Justice Ginsburg. She and Justice Scalia were friends, yes. But she never embraced his legal philosophy. Um, so that is what concerns me. And I want to turn to an area that where I think Justice Ginsburg, whose seat we are considering you for, was truly a hero. And that was the area of voting rights. And that was the area of elections. Um, I think that, what did the president say here? He said, September 23rd, 2020, I think this, he means the election, will end up in the Supreme Court. And I think it's very important that we have nine justices. <laughs> I don't think how much clearer we can be. And as I said yesterday, I do not for a minute concede that this election is going to end up in the Supreme Court because people are voting in droves as we speak. But that is what is on the mind of the man who nominated you for this job. Then he said, on September 29th of 2020, I think I'm counting on them, he meant the court, to look at the ballots indefinitely. So um, I know you said earlier in uh, questions from Senator Leahy that you are not going to commit to whether or not you are going to recuse yourself uh, for any, any kind of an election case. But I do want to point out uh, that as the president has said these things, and as he has nominated you, that people are voting right now. They are voting, as I said, in droves. Um, do you know how many states are people are voting right now, Judge? I think one of my colleagues know. said it. Earlier. I don't know. It's uh, more than 40 states. People are voting right now as we speak. 
I think something like 9 million votes have been cast. Do you think it is faithful to our democratic principles to fill a Supreme Court vacancy this close to an election when people are still voting? Senator Klobuchar, I think that is a question for the political branches. Okay. Um, that's, that's your right to answer in that way. Um, beyond this immediate election, I want to turn to the Supreme Court's critical role uh, when it comes to the right to vote, this area where Justice Ginsburg was such a champion. Um, Senator Durbin went over your dissent at length in Cantor v. Barr, uh, where you drew a distinction between individual rights and civic rights. Uh, and you wrote that historically, uh, felons should be disqualified from exercising certain rights, like the right to vote and to serve on juries. Um, so my question is this, actually this next line, where you said these rights belonged only to virtuous citizens. Um, what does that mean? Senator, I would need to look at the article to clarify, but as I'm sitting here, I don't think I said felons should lose voting rights. I think what I was talking about is that Could. 14th Amendment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that. But it wasn't an article, just to be clear, right? This was, uh, this is your dissent. Oh, my, sorry, my dissent. Yeah, I think it's your dissent in, in Cantor. Cantor yes, you're right. And it says felons could be disqualified from exercising certain rights, like the rights to vote and serve on juries. But apart from that clause, you said these rights belong only to virtuous citizens. That's what um, I'm trying to understand what that means. So the argument in the case, um, those who were challenging Heller and those who were arguing on the side of the government in the Cantor case is that the, seventh, the Second Amendment is a civic right. Um, and that is how the Supreme Court itself uh, framed the debate as a distinction between civic rights and individual rights, with voting being a civic right. And in literature, you know, in the historical literature, that was, which was at play in that case. Okay, but how would you gone. define the word virtuous? Because it doesn't appear in the Constitution. Well, Senator, I'm just trying to this, know what that means, because we're, uh, we're living at a time where a lot of people are having their voting rights taken away from them. So what's virtuous? Okay, well, Senator, I want to be clear that that is not in the opinion designed to denigrate the right to vote, which is fundamental. Mm -hmm. The distinction between civic and individual rights is one that's present in the court's decisions, and it has to do with a kind of a jurisprudential view of what rights are. And the virtuous citizenry idea is a historical and jurisprudential one. It certainly does not mean that I think that anybody gets a measure of virtue and whether they're good or not and whether they're allowed to vote. That's okay. not what I said. Okay. Now, let me ask you this in a different way, because now let's go to the real world here. So, in Justice Ginsburg's dissent in Shelby, uh, where a 5-4 court struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act, she described the right to vote as a fundamental right in our democratic system. And I assume you agree with this, because you just said that not, let's not get to her dissent. You agree with the concept that it's a fundamental right, because you just As I just said, said yeah, the court has repeatedly, repeatedly said it was okay, fundamental. Okay, so she also wrote in her dissent that 
the Constitution uses the words right to vote in five separate places, the 14th, 15th, 19th, 24th, and 26th Amendments. Each of these amendments, this is still her talking, not me, each of these amendments contains the same broad empowerment of Congress to enact appropriate legislation to enforce the protected right. The implication is unmistakable. Under our constitutional structure, Congress holds the lead reign in making the right to vote equally real for all U.S. citizens. Do you agree with Justice Ginsburg's conclusion that the Constitution clearly empowers Congress to protect the right to vote? Well, Senator, that would be eliciting an opinion from me on whether the dissent or the majority was right in Shelby County, and I can't express a view on that, as I've said, because it would be inconsistent with the judicial rule. Okay, so here's my problem. So you go out of your way in the case that uh, Dick Durbin was discussing to make this distinction between voting rights and gun rights, but now you won't <laughs> say whether or not you agree with Ginsburg. And so my view is just based, again, following those tracks on this case, uh, that you are most likely with the majority, but I know you're not gonna answer this, but what I do want you to know is this. And this is where it gets interesting because of what Justice Ginsburg uh, predicted in that dissent. Um, according to the Brennan Center, over 20 states since that case came out um, that withdrew, that took away part of the protections from the Voting Rights Act, over 20 states have now made more restrictive voting laws than they did before that case. Doesn't that suggest to you that Justice Ginsburg had the better of the argument uh, when she wrote that throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you are not getting wet. Do you think that that's true? And I mean, it seems to me that the proof is in the pudding. Like basically this rainstorm that she said would come has come with all these states, including a number of them uh, that my colleagues over there represent have enacted stricter laws. Has it happened? Um, Senator Klobuchar, I want to clarify. You said I was answering Senator Durbin's questions about the Second Amendment, but refusing to answer yours. And so I just wanted to clarify that I have written Cantor versus Barr, and so that's why I was talking about it. But since I didn't write Shelby, I can't really talk about it. So anything that I've written about or talked about, I would be happy to answer your questions. Okay. All right. Um, but again, it just seems to me you are out of your way in that case, and this is a case that is so real for so many people right now. Um, and that while you can say it's a fundamental right, the issue is that this case and the Voting Rights Act are so key, and let me, let me just say why. We're talking about the entire foundation of our democracy here. For centuries, Americans have fought and died to protect the right to vote. And so what matters is not just what you say about it's being fundamental, it's what you do. States like South Carolina, Texas, North Carolina, Louisiana, Tennessee have policies that make it harder for people to vote. And it's a real world thing before the Supreme Court. In fact, back in May, when voters in Wisconsin were standing in line in the middle of a pandemic, in homemade masks, in garbage bags, in the middle of a rainstorm just to exercise their right to vote. 70 of them got COVID because we didn't know enough about it back then because the president had told us what he knew and we didn't know enough to protect those voters. So it ends up at the Supreme Court. What did Justice Ginsburg do? 
when the Republican-appointed majority on the court ruled that voters in Wisconsin could not have more time to get their ballots in during the pandemic, she called them out in her dissent, in her blueprint for the future, and she said the majority opinion boggled the mind. So what boggles my mind? Well, two weeks ago, the U.S. Supreme Court reinstated the South Carolina report requirement that mail-in ballots must have witness signatures. In the middle of a pandemic, you got to go and get a witness. In Texas, Republicans have argued that the pandemic wasn't a good enough reason to let people under age 65 vote by mail, despite the fact that over 42,000 Americans under 65 have died from COVID. And the governor is right now is forcing that state to have only one ballot box per county, including in Harris County, where there are 4.7 million people. And for those of you that thought a judge took care of it a few days ago, he did. But then yesterday, three Trump-appointed judges came in and reversed that. So we're back to one ballot box for people to drop their ballots off in a county of 4.7 million people. In Tennessee, Republicans have tried to prevent ballot drop boxes. I know we had the Secretary of State as one of our witnesses at a Rules Committee hearing, and they have argued in court that COVID-19 is not a valid excuse to vote by mail. In North Carolina, the Supreme Court struck down a core component of the Voting Rights Act. What happened? Well, States like North Carolina passed laws that were so egregious to make it harder to vote that the Fourth Circuit struck down their law and noted that it targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. So that is what the stakes are. And that is why not having Justice Ginsburg on the court right now is so frightening to so many Americans out there. And that is why we are asking you these questions about voting. So let me just turn to another election question, gerrymandering. In 2015, Justice Ginsburg wrote the majority opinion in Arizona State Legislature for the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission, holding that it was constitutional for the people of Arizona to amend the state constitution to establish an independent redistricting commission. Because of this case and Justice Ginsburg's opinion, Many argue now that Arizona has fairer electoral maps. The decision was 5-4. Here's your example. And now Justice Ginsburg and Justice Kennedy are no longer on the court. My question is this. Must state legislatures abide by their own state's constitution when exercising their authority under the elections clause? Senator Klobuchar, that would be eliciting an opinion from me about whether I agreed or disagreed with the result in that case. Okay, and is it constitutional for voters to amend a state constitution to establish specific processes for elections like the voters in Arizona did to stop gerrymandering? Again, you're asking me for a view on that particular case, and Justice Ginsburg herself gave the most famous articulation of the principle that constrains me from doing so, which is no hints, forecasts, or previews. So I can't express a view on precedent or on how I would decide any question that was provoked by the application of that precedent to a later case. Okay, last week a contractor from outside of my state of Minnesota started recruiting poll watchers with special forces experience. Mm -hmm. to protect polling locations in my state. This was clear voter intimidation. Similar efforts are going on around the country. 
solicited by President Trump's false claims of massive voter fraud, something that, by the way, many Republican leaders, including Michael Steele, the former head of the Republican Party, including Tom Ridge, including Governor Kasich, including sitting Senator Romney, have made very clear is not true. So as a result of his claims, people are trying to get poll watchers, special forces people to go to the polls. Judge Barrett, under federal law, is it illegal to intimidate voters at the polls? Senator Klobuchar, I can't characterize the facts in a hypothetical situation, and I can't apply the law to a hypothetical set of facts. I can only decide cases as they come to me, litigated by parties on a full record after fully engaging precedent, talking to colleagues, writing an opinion. And so I can't answer questions like okay, that. Okay, well, I'll make, I'll make it easier. 18 U.S.C. 594 outlaws anyone who intimidates, threatens, coerces, or attempts to intimidate, threaten, or coerce any other person for the purpose of interfering with the right of such other person to vote. This is a law that has been on the books for decades. Do you think a reasonable person would feel intimidated by the presence of armed civilian groups at the polls? Senator Klobuchar, you know, that is eliciting, I'm not sure whether to say it's eliciting a legal opinion from me because the reasonable person standard, as you know, is one common in the law, or just an opinion as a citizen, but it's not something really that's appropriate for me to comment on. Okay. Um, here's one that I think is a selection of election, uh, electoral college electors. Uh, you know that each state has laws uh, that dictate how electoral college electors are selected. Um, Judge Barrett, in 1932, the Supreme Court in Smiley v. Home, a case involving my state, ruled that the Minnesota State Legislature could not change election rules unilaterally. Um, do you agree that the unanimous opinion in Smiley v. Home, which has never been questioned by any other Supreme Court case, is settled law? Um. Well, I'll say two things about that. First of all, I was not aware of that case, so you've taught me something. Okay. But secondly, I can't comment on the precedent, give thumbs up or thumbs down in Justice Kagan's words. Okay. Well, why don't we end there with precedent? I think that's a good way to end here. Um, so you wrote in your 2013 Texas Law Review article uh, that you tend to agree with the view that when a justice's best understanding of the Constitution conflicts with Supreme Court precedent or case law, it is, quote, more legitimate for her to follow her preferred view rather than apply the precedent. And I want to run through a few examples. So Brown v. Board of Education, as we know, that holds that the 14th Amendment prohibits states from segregating schools on the basis of race. So. Uh, is that precedent um, but yes, that can't be overruled? Well, that is precedent. Um, mm -hmm. And as I think I said in that same article, it's super precedent. People consider it to be on that very small list of things that are so widely established and agreed upon by everyone. Mm -hmm. Calls for its overruling simply don't exist. Okay. Well, you also separately acknowledge that in uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Supreme Court's controlling opinion talked about in the reliance interests on Roe v. Wade, which it treated in that case as super precedent. Is Roe a super precedent? How would you define super precedent? I, I, I actually, I might 
thought someday I'd be sitting in that chair. I'm not. I'm up here, so I'm asking okay, you. Okay. Well, people so. use super precedent differently. Okay. The way that it's used in the scholarship and the way that I was using it in the article that you're reading from was to define cases that are so well settled that no political actors and no people seriously push for their overruling. And I'm answering a lot of questions about Roe, which I think indicates that Roe doesn't fall in that category. And scholars across the spectrum say that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. But descriptively, it does mean that it's a case, not a case that everyone has accepted and doesn't call for its overruling. I don't okay, think so I here's, what's, here's what's interesting to me. You said that Brown is, and I know my time is running out, is a super precedent. That's something uh, the Supreme Court has not even said, but you have said that. So if you say that, why won't you say that about Roe v. Wade, a case that the court's controlling opinion in that Planned Parenthood v. Casey case has described as a super precedent? That's what I'm trying to figure out. Um, well, Senator, I can just give you the same answer that I just did. I'm using a term in that article that is from the scholarly literature. It's actually one that was developed by scholars who are you know, certainly not conservative scholars who take a more progressive approach to the Constitution. And again, you know, as, as Richard Fallon from Harvard said, Roe is not a super precedent because calls for its overruling have never ceased, but that doesn't mean that Roe should be overruled. It just means that it doesn't fall on the small handful of cases like Marbury versus Madison and Brown versus the board that no one questions anymore. Is United States for Virginia military, is that super precedent? Senator Klobuchar, if you continue to ask questions about super precedents that aren't on the list of the super precedents that I discussed in the article that are well acknowledged in the constitutional law literature, every time you ask the question, I will have to say that I can't grade it. Okay. Well, I am then left with looking at the tracks of your record and where it leads the American people. And I think it leads us to a place that's going to have severe repercussions for them. Thank you.